6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Lamentations, chapters 3 through 5. Well, we continue our review of Jeremiah's Lamentations. And let's, again, begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for who You are. We thank You for Your Word, which You've given us. We thank You for this opportunity that You provided, that we might review Your Word and might appropriate to ourselves the lesson that are contained here, Father. We pray that through Your Holy Spirit, You would make clear what You would have of us in the days that remain as we commit this time and ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, our refuge, Jesus Christ. Amen. Lamentations, part two. We're going to look at the last three chapters, chapters three, four, and five, that one writer suggests is labeled when tomorrows become yesterdays. This is a look ahead. Chapter three is the high point. It's the largest of the three chapters, but it's also, in many respects, the positive aspect here. A little background. Jeremiah, of course, is one of our most revered prophets. He's very autobiographical, so we know a great deal about him personally. He's a model. He's not only a lessons teacher, but he also is an example to follow. Involved, committed, passionately. These were not academic critiques. These are participating mourning going on here. Deeply spiritual, uncompromising, was thrown in prison as being a traitor and a spy for the enemy by... uh, his adversaries. He was uncompromising with himself and with his nation. He'd never change his story, never soften. He would tell it like it is, how precious that is. His style is very different than Isaiah, which is very high-level literature. No, Jeremiah is direct, earthy, passionate, and very incisive, very clear in what he's saying. He used a lot of poetry, though, very lyrical, yet he is a man of the earth called the weeping prophet because he's just consumed with the tragedy that's about him because they are not listening, not following, not being obedient to God's Word. We'll feel the very fiber of his being as we listen to his words. It comes through even through the translations. has 66 passages from the book of Deuteronomy, references to Job and the Psalms, great indebtedness to Hosea in the minds of many, who had a message of the northern kingdom that also was not heeded and went down. He's quoted over 50 times in the New Testament, and over half of those references are in the book of Revelation. Very timely, very relevant to you and me. He's regarded by many scholars as the greatest spiritual giants of all time. Now, whether or not you might agree with that assessment, it certainly puts him on the short list of the winners. He's a top, top guy. We need to spend more time with him. His ministry actually spanned five kings, some pretty dismal examples, actually. Three of them are very, very important. Two of them reigned only for three months, but even one of them is very, very important. Hezekiah, Manasseh, Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, 
Jehoiachin, don't confuse the two, and Zedekiah. And if that's not confusing, several of them had their names changed to make sure that you'll mess that up on the final exam. Hezekiah was followed by Manasseh. Hezekiah was a pretty good guy. But Manasseh's bad news tried to destroy Judaism, wiped, eliminated every copy of the Torah. Fortunately, there's one he missed. We'll come to that. And it was in his reign that the Levites took the ark out of the temple to put it in safekeeping in Egypt. And uh, violently apostate, blood border to border in Jerusalem, and uh, it also gives rise to the whole issue of the Ethiopian ark, which is another story. Then we have Josiah. Good guy, young, teenager, took charge, but he really took charge. And he had reforms that were very important to all of us. It's during his time, though, that Jerusalem will fall, and Nineveh falls to Babylon. That's the, speaking of the first siege there. And the Nineveh, of course, fell completely. That's when the Torah was also found, and that changes a lot of things. But he taxed Pharaoh Necho, apparently going after the ark, which was not returned, and he wanted it. But Pharaoh Necho says, I'm doing what God told me to do. Be careful what you're doing. And he attacks anyway and gets killed. He dies at Megiddo. Getting back to Jeremiah being called, it's all this background for his perspective here. And he's not, Jeremiah never lets go of the fact that Judah is sinning and that God is going to use Babylon as an instrument of judgment. He admonishes them to stay out of world's politics, to keep trying to find a, a benefactor, to fight. No, God is raising, Jeremiah is predicting that Babylon is going to rise to power and be God's instrument of judgment. Not Assyria, not Egypt, Babylon. So God does use their enemies to bring about his predicament. And, and so Jeremiah is called about 629 B.C., to give you perspective here. And it's about 17 years later that Nineveh finally falls to Babylon. The Assyrian Empire thus has lost its muscle. Three major powers, Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, all fighting each other, all intriguing, going on. But it's the rise in the spirit of Babylon that is the, the key issue. There's some reforms. The northern kingdom has fallen to the Assyrians. But that's putting on pressure. You'd think, they would, you'd think that Judah would learn from the lessons of the northern kingdom, but they don't learn. So Assyria is the dominant power having taken over the northern kingdom. Nabopolassar, a rising star in the Babylonian situation. The Babylonian city was just a pawn of Assyrian politics, but Nabopolassar gets an alliance. His son is Nebuchadnezzar, who's a very brilliant general, and actually ultimately takes over by the Battle of Karshemesh becomes the strong man in the region. He's uh, strong enough to, uh, to destroy Nineveh, the capital of Syrians, during Josiah's reign. Pharaoh Necho is jumping into the picture. Josiah takes up arms against Pharaoh Necho, which is strange. Hard to explain unless you realize he's after the ark that's been down there. But he's, Josiah, in any case, is killed at Megiddo. Nebuchadnezzar finally defeats Pharaoh Necho at the Battle of Karshemesh, and that changes the whole picture in that region. Babylon now rules the known world. And Jehoahaz is the, the successor to this young, very popular Josiah. And he will only reign for about three months before Jehoiakim follows. And then after him, his son, Jehoiachin. So we go to Jehoahaz. We don't find much about him because he only ruled for about three months. He was anti-Egypt and pro-Babylonian, interestingly enough. But Pharaoh Necho doesn't <laughs> go for that too much. Again, these external politics always go against them. Pharaoh Necho does four things. Deposes Jehoahaz, takes him to Egypt exacts tribute from Judah, sets the oldest son of Josiah, in other words, a brother of his, on the throne. His name was Eliakim, but Pharaoh Necho changes his name to Jehoiakim. He reigns about 11 years. 
Not bad since his predecessor and his successor are three-month guys, <laughs> 90-day wonders. It's his reign, those 11 years, that give the greatest trial to Jeremiah, because it's during that period that Jeremiah's word is ignored, in fact, fought bitterly. Uh, they're on opposite ends of every subject that comes up, whether it's politics or religion. Jeremiah and Jehoiakim are at opposite ends. Again, that, that uh, Jeremiah's theme doesn't change. He's pointing out God is raising Babylon to judge Judah. That may sound like surprise to them, but of course it, it happens. He tries to resist Babylon, play intrigues with Egypt to his, to his failure. And Jehoiakim is probably the worst and most ungodly of all Judah's kings. There were nine dynasties in the northern kingdom, only one dynasty in the southern kingdom. But some of those players are pretty bad news, and he's the worst. He's bloodthirsty, enemy of the truth, uncaring relative to the worship of the God of Israel, exorbitant taxes levied, forced labor without pay, and he sponsors idolatry and widespread injustice. It's interesting how idolatry and injustice go together. So he's an inveterate foe of God and His Word, and therefore a major enemy of Jeremiah. And his first-tier guys are obviously adversaries to Jeremiah. He, has, he tries a revolt that's unsuccessful, and that leads to the big siege by Nebuchadnezzar. So Jeremiah is persecuted, plotted against, finally imprisoned. It's Jehoiakim that destroys all of Jeremiah's prophecies. So what we have is a result of a replacement of those by Jeremiah and Baruch, his amanuensis, scribe, partner, what have you. And during all this trouble, Jeremiah doesn't change his theme. He hangs on to this very unpopular theme as a deep-feeling patriot. And yet his focus is not Babylon, it's on the fact that the nation is in sin, refusing to repent, not heeding these admonitions. So he's, re- he's replaced by Jehoiachin, only for three months, but enough to, make, to have God call down a blood curse on his line. And he sometimes goes by the name of Jeconiah and Kaniah in the Scriptures. And so don't get confused. But that blood curse is described in Jeremiah 22, verse 30. It leads to the second siege of Jerusalem. He only reigns about three months. It's his father's rebellion that really triggers Nebuchadnezzar's laying a siege on Jerusalem a second time, during which he takes Ezekiel also as a, as a hostage. Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, Chin, whichever you like, capitulates, exiled to Babylon with many nobles. Temples plundered. Jehoiachin is exiled for 37 years in Babylon. He's enslaved there. He's finally released by a successor to Nebuchadnezzar, but nothing's accomplished there. And a small point, many people don't realize that Belshazzar was not the son of Nebuchadnezzar, he was his grandson. It causes confusion when people look, compare this with Daniel 5. There's no son for grandson in the language, that's what causes the confusion. But we get finally to the final king, the last player in the succession. The final siege of Jerusalem and the assassination of the appointed governor. In the second siege, he took Jehoiachin captive and put the son of Josiah by the name of Metaniah, who he changes his name to uh, Jehoiachin, who had been deported. And so uh, he changes Metaniah to Zedekiah as a, as a, a royal name, if you will. Interesting, a lot of these names are very different as royal names. Solomon's name was, not, was, was Jedediah. Solomon was his royal name, by which we know him. But he had an intimate name with his mother called Lemuel. So that clears up a lot of confusion when you study the book of Proverbs. But any anyway, moving on. Zedekiah is the king that's installed during the second siege. But he doesn't succeed. And he will fall in the third and final siege of Nebuchadnezzar. Three sieges. He's very weak, puppet, very deficient, 
a pawn of a second-tier second lieutenants who finally talk him into rebelling, and that's a big mistake, and Nebuchadnezzar has a, has a belly full of it. And as first-string officials are pro-Egypt, big mistake. They're not strong enough to be a help. And nothing gets done because there's a tension between the king and his advisors. And it's these officials that give Jeremiah a hard time for his theological and his political position. The second string are all pro-Egypt. They call Jeremiah treasonous, a spy for the enemy, that sort of thing. And he gets imprisoned and what have you. It's the fourth year of Zedekiah's reign that he plots against Babylon with some other kings in the region. But uh, Jeremiah announces all of this. Nothing happens. It's five years later that he conspires against Pharaoh, with Pharaoh, who's not Necho now, successor, against Nebuchadnezzar. During this period, Jeremiah is urging surrender to Nebuchadnezzar because he regards Babylon as God's instrument. They're making a big mistake. And because of that mistake, that's why Jerusalem is finally leveled completely. Zedekiah tries to support Jeremiah in, in token ways, but doesn't do anything effective. And Jeremiah's enemies continue to treat him badly. Nebuchadnezzar takes a dim view of all of this. The city walls, uh, fall, the city, uh, walls get pierced, and, and the whole place comes down in the summer of 586. And this is the date that the Jews celebrate to this day on the 9th of Av. Major themes of Jeremiah are faithfulness to God is the only guarantee of a nation's security. And we suggest that that's an essential message in our time today. Our time today. The United States is a disaster morally. We've forgotten what we were all about, what we were founded on. And our problems are serious, desperate, and our answers are no different than Jeremiah's, the one he laid out for Judah. They were facing their enemies, we're facing ours. And the answer to these problems are not in our ballot box, but in our prayer closet. Our problems are solved the same way that they were then, by faithfulness to God. That's the only guarantee of our security. And something else that shows up all through this is idolatry. Idolatry and immorality tend to be yoked together, one by one. And so we will understand Jeremiah better, and the more we do, the more we'll be able to have a whole new perception of our own difficulties. Five poems or hymns or dirges here. Chapter 1 and 2 we went through last time. Chapter 3 is the one of hope for the people of God. And this is all going to be just a chastisement, not a wipeout. A better day would have ultimately dawned because of all of this. And the final chapter laments the ruin and desolation that had come upon them. It still never loses the linkage between their problems and their sins. And finally, the last chapter is the only one that's not acrostic. All these other are acrostic in their structure. That Zion's reproach will be taken away with repentance of the people. First four poems are acrostics. Each, begins, each verse begins with a different successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In chapter 3, we'll take three verses at a time for each letter of the alphabet. The first, second, and fourth are 22-verse chapters. The chapter 3 has 66, same, same conception. The fifth is not acrostic. Okay, and we have a chiasmic structure from Lamentations 1, the desolation, to God's, as an instrument of God's judgment. And Jeremiah's, we're going to see Jeremiah's response to all of this in, in this coming chapter. And then we'll get to the Lord's anger summarized and the response to all of this, which is a, a remarkable expression of God's love as an ultimate refuge. And the chiasmic structure has been noted by many scholars, but we'll keep moving here. Matthew's primary theme is worth echoing here. The Gospel of Matthew, the purpose of all history, the tragedy of all history, the triumph of all history, in just a couple of verses at the end of chapter 23 of Matthew, where Jesus 
weeps over Jerusalem. Jeremiah wept over Jerusalem 600 years earlier. Jesus weeps prophetically. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens. That's the purpose of all history. The tragedy of all history is that ye would not, but ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And 38 years later, after that declaration, Jerusalem is again destroyed, not by the Babylonians, by the Romans. Very similar situation. But the final verse is, I, this is the triumph of all history, still coming. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Indeed they will, and indeed he will. Till, you always want to watch these untils. They're key milestones. We're getting to chapter 3, which is going to be about the hope of the people of God. The hope is that their chastisement would be for their own good. The real theme here is that a better day will dawn for them. This is the heart of Jeremiah's short little book called Lamentations. This gives a positive framework around which all the other chapters revolve. The blackness of sin and suffering are in chapters 1 and 2 and 4 and 5 are a backdrop to a sparkling contrast of God's love in chapter 3. And it differs markedly from the first two. Instead of 22 verses 66, three times the others, which I think is in itself significant. It's organized roughly. It's Jeremiah's response in terms of his afflictions, his hope, and his prayer. That's the three divisions of chapter 3. Jeremiah continues, I am the man that, see, that hath seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. Surely against me is he turned. He turneth his hand against me all the day. My flesh and my skin hath he made old. He hath broken my bones. He hath builded against me and compassed me with gall and travail. He hath set me in dark places as they that be dead of old. He hath hedged me about that I cannot get out. He hath made my chain heavy. And when I cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. He hath enclosed my ways with hewn stone. He hath made my paths crooked. He was unto me as a bearer lying in wait, and as a lion in secret places. He hath turned aside my ways, pulled me into pieces. He hath made me desolate. He hath bent his bow and set me as a mark for the arrow. He hath caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my veins. He, I was a derision to all my people and their song all the day. He hath filled me with bitterness. He hath made me drunken with wormwood. He hath also broken my teeth with gravel stones. He hath covered me with ashes. And thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. I forgot prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Remembering my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. Jeremiah is now looking, obviously, to the past. He says, I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. And so he's sitting on the rubble of Jerusalem, weeping as he writes all this. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. There is this sparkling verse tucked right in the middle of all this misery. It is the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. 
They are new every morning, and great is thy faithfulness. His mercies. Here, despite this trauma that he's immersed in, not quickly, this is a part of his 40-year ministry. His compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. It's astonishing to see this great man of God plunged into this darkness and this abuse, able to keep focus on God's mercies. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in Him. Boy, if there's something we need to remember out of Lamentations, it's probably verses 22 through 24. Wow. Deserve deliverance. That's really what he's saying. No, what's the reason they've even survived is because of the faithfulness of God. He had promised Abraham that he would make a nation come from him. And this was that nation. See, Jeremiah is gaining his strength by understanding the pattern of history here. He promised Moses that he would bring them into the land. He had promised Joshua that he would establish them there. He promised David that there would come one in his line to reign on the throne forever. Jeremiah never lost sight of that. See, the prophets all had said that God would not utterly destroy the people, but that He would judge them for their sin. God is faithful, and He has judged them. But He will not utterly destroy them. That's the glimmer of hope that Jeremiah is positioning here. A faithful remnant has always remained. And ultimately, they will become a great nation again. That's the the tenor here. The Lord is good to them that wait for Him, and the soul that seeketh Him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. He sitteth alone and keepeth silence, because he hath borne it upon him. He putteth his mouth in the dust, if so be there may be hope. He giveth his cheek to him that smiteth him. He is filled with reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. Amazing position for Jeremiah and his predicament. For if doth not afflict willingly, or grieve the children of men, to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the right of a man before the face of the Most High, or his senior is what it really means, to subvert a man in his cause, the Lord approveth not. Who is he that saith, and it cometh to pass, when the Lord commandeth it not? Out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good? Wherefore doth a living man complain, and a man for the punishment of his sins? Let us search and try our ways, and turn again unto the Lord. Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto the God in the heavens. We have transgressed and have rebelled. Thou hast not pardoned. Thou hast covered with anger and persecuted us. Thou hast slain, and thou hast not pitied. Thou hast covered thyself with a cloud, that our prayer should not pass through. Thou hast made us as the offscoring and refuse in the midst of the people. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Fear and snares come upon us, desolation and destruction. Mine eye runneth down with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. He shifts, by the way, from the plural to the singular. The next verses 48 to 51 provide a transition from the people's confession to Jeremiah's example. Mine eye trickleth down and seeth it not without any intermission. 
Till the Lord look down and behold from heaven. Mine eye affect, affecteth mine heart because of all the daughters of my city. Mine enemies chased me sore like a bird without cause. This is Jeremiah's ministry, especially in Judah's final days. Created many, many enemies. The people from his own hometown plotted to kill him. We see that in Jeremiah chapter 11. And everybody at the temple demanded he be executed. That's in Jeremiah 26. He was beaten down and thrown into prison as a traitor in Jeremiah 37. And later, near the end of Nebuchadnezzar's siege, lowered into a muddy cistern to starve to death. That's in Jeremiah 38. Wow. Is that a ministry you'd want to be called to? They have cut off my life in the dungeon and cast a stone upon me. Waters flowed over mine head, and then I said, I am cut off. I called upon thy name, O Lord, out of the low dungeon. Thou hast heard my voice. Hide not thine ear at my breathing, at my cry. Thou drewest near in the day that I called upon thee. Thou saidst, Fear not. O Lord, thou hast pleaded the causes of my soul. Thou hast redeemed my life. O Lord, thou hast seen my wrong. Judge thou my cause. Thou hast seen all their vengeance and all their imaginations against me. Thou hast heard their reproach, O Lord, and all their imaginations against me, the lips of those that rose up against me and their device against me all the day. Behold, they're sitting down and they're rising up. I am their music. Render unto them a recompense, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. Give them sorrow of heart, thy curse unto them. Persecute and destroy them in anger from under the heavens of the Lord. Will God judge America? That's one of the lurking questions we have to think about. A lot of people don't think so. I think he will. I think America is ripe for judgment. I won't go into that whole detour. I'll leave it to you to explore yourself. Let's go to chapter 4, which speaks of the ruin and desolation of the Jerusalem and the temple. Again, tracing it to the people's sins. The Lord's anger will be contrasted before and after the, the siege, causes for the siege, and then a call for vindication. That's basically the structure of chapter 4. It's a short chapter. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Lamentations. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.